it's Jazz Fest time, and so if we're going to do justice to Jazz Fest, we, of course, are going to have to talk with some of the people who were there 50 years ago. You know what I mean? And um, uh, we're going to start, we're going to introduce him with a very special recording that is not out there all over the world all the time, so this is kind of a special moment, and I think you're going to recognize the composer and the vocalist and the producer on it, and it's in honor of a guy named Leo. Anybody's in Leo, which way did he go? He left a funky, funky trail. Taking music higher, setting grooves on fire. Funky grooves are heard around the world. He walks the walk, and he talks the talk. He lives and breathes music. Coming up with new things, with the New Orleans thing. Other players know it around the world. He's the meter man. Meter man. He's the meter man. Meter man. Syncopation so right and bold. Get on, get on, get on it. It's just so funky. Funky. Honky tonky. It can rattle your soul. Get on, get on, get on it. The meter man. Meter man. Of the meter band.
what's going to happen. First of all, we have the one and only meter man, Leo Nocentelli, in studio. But the first thing I'm going to do is tell you that the first person who calls in, who knows who that producer, composer, vocalist was on that, is going to get a special piece of artwork that I'm going to make available to them. Okay? So... Guess and call. All right, 2609265. In the meantime, Leo, the meter man, is going to talk into the mic and we're going to visit about his life, his experience with the very beginning of the jazz fest cuz he was there. He was there. I was right there, right there. I remember uh, well 50 years ago, you know, now uh Quint Quint Davis and, and I, and, and also Zig, the drummer with the meters, were a really good friend. We used to hang out when we were younger, 50, 50 years ago, you know, and, you know, doing all kind of things and getting in trouble and whatever. Just like you see myself and Quint, you know, we was like Brothers. young people, you know, yeah. back then. And uh, we Quint was, Quint was staying in, in, at the, in the Bywater District. He had a place there, and um, and we were just sitting around, you know, getting a few drinks or whatever in his living room. And I was on one side and Zig was on the other. And we were like bookends to Quint. And Quint uh, looked at both of us and said, you know what, man? He said, uh, what do you think about uh, uh, jazz, New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival to celebrate, you know, some of the local artists here in New Orleans? I said, you know, man, that's a great idea. So, and even though I know I just found out that he and, and, and George Ween were talking about it, you know, a while, a while before then, but he brought it to us. That's the first time that it was. That's where it was conceived at. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, we wound up playing the uh, the first jazz fest that ever was. It was one stage in Congo Square, and it was uh, Count Basie, Ella, Ella, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Duke Ellington, the Meters, and I forget who else. But it was one of those things. It was just one stage and kind that of that was play. memorable enough, and, right there. Yeah, and 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 the rest is history. So this is my fiftieth one I'm playing. So today. so when when you did that event at Congo Square and and Congo Square, as I think most of the people in our audience know, has this incredibly rich, complicated, important history. It was a place where, unlike most American communities. Slaves were allowed to have a day to express their own culture. No doubt. And they they danced, they sang, they talked. It was it was a place where all bets were off. And I've read a little bit more history about that lately, and I'm going to recommend a book to you, Leo. Um, it's it's uh, by Jason DeBerry, and it's. Um, it's kind of about those early years, and uh, I'm going to think of the title before the show is over. Would, would it it's be just, the poet Lariat? No, no. No, okay. Okay, so um, I'll <laughs> think of it. But um, it talks about how the people who performed there not only performed in Congo Square, but under certain circumstances they forayed out of Congo Square and basically second-lined through the quarter at a time when that was kind of – Definitely stepping out. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, we're talking about a much more rigid. We still have racism, but that was a much more rigid time. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a place where the blacks 
and the Indians met, played music, congos, and whatever, and, and, and intervened with each other. And uh, it was a very, a very special time. And, and that brings to another fact that everybody thinks that the Indians, when they, it's just a costume, like uh, you dress up in any anything else. No. But it's had, it has a significance. And that's yeah. why, that's why this, the, the, especially the black Indians, they are, are so serious about that by, you know, yeah. making these, these suits and spending so much time mm-hmm. on it because they celebrate, they're celebrating that, that, that time when, when the blacks and the Indians intermingled with, e- with each other. Leo, did you, um, have you ever made it to Haiti? Bobby, one? Have you ever made it to no, Haiti? No, 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 I didn't, no, never okay. been there. Because if, if you saw the way people dressed, costumed and uh, second lined you would see this incredible connection between the African roots uh, in Haiti and here and of course as we all know there was I I forget the year of the revolution in Haiti I think it was like it was around 1803 4 I'd have to look it up but um, there was such a huge migration of people from Haiti to New Orleans that it just about doubled the population here. Yeah. So we have huge Haitian roots to the city, but also, as you say, the Indian roots. Now, let's talk about the meters. When I first got to New Orleans in 1972, okay, I've been here ever since except for a little, like you, I went back up to New York for a while in the 90s, yeah. and I was working for David Dinkins and other people up there during most of the 90s, but otherwise I've been here. The first time I ever heard the, the meters, it was like, you couldn't not move. Okay, it's it's music for moving. Yeah. And I, I want you to tell me about the roots of the meters sound and how that came to be. And um, it was dominant and it still is. It's still a thread oh, in our music It's, it's more dominant now than it ever was. Really? Oh, yeah, no wow. doubt. Through, through the art of sampling. You know, oh, the, the, uh, okay. the, the rappers, the young rappers that took that music and and I mean, there's over four to five hundred samples, uh, you know. I'm, and like, not just rappers from New Orleans. Yeah, no, no, all over the world. I'm talking about LL Cool J, Latifah, uh, the, uh, I, uh, I can't. I get my word, heavy words. Uh, heavy D, right. uh, Music Soul Child. I just got, I just got some platinum albums hanging on my wall from Eminem. That that sampled the mute sampled the song. There's a song out now by India Love, uh, produced by uh, Will I Am that features my guitar in in India. It, it, it's amazing. There's three songs in the in in the movie. What's the name of the movie? I think it's called. Um, uh, so Bill Sleepin- Bill DeBuda Dickens is here. He's one of his <laughs> he's helping side men, and but he I, I and, just, and I see why he needs to be here. Yeah, he, I can, I, he's like it, me. It's just, it just, it just so overwhel- just so overwhelming why and how that music that was written over forty some years ago is like so prevalent today. So you know that you've brought up another issue, but I'm still want to get back to the origins of your sound because it's so distinctive. It was different from anything anybody else was doing, and you can call it funk. And there was a lot of funk out there, but there was the meter sound, right. which is you know you once you hear it the first time, every other time you hear it, you're going to know exactly what it yeah. is. But um, how do you feel about sampling? Oh, uh, I love it. It's good for my pockets. You okay, know? so you're getting paid. For <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Now at one time, it's a story about it. At one time, 
uh, they would sample you. Say forty some years ago, they would sample you, and and one of the rappers would go in in, in the store and, and buy the actual acetate, you know, the six dollars and fifty cents, and they own that 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 album. And um, but they didn't understand it, so they said, "Well, no, I, I sampled that. Why are you going to try to sue me?" Uh, I bought that. I own that, that acetate. I own that album. I paid six dollars and fifty cents for it. So, but, but what they didn't understand is they, they cannot make, uh, they can, cannot further their financial income on someone else's artistry. So when they sample and say a song like Sissy Strut, that's the meter's artistry. That's, you know, that's, that's our that's artistry. Right. Yeah. So you, you can't make money like that and not pay where, pay to pay the people where you, where you got the the ideas from, where you got the music. They used to take the actual acetate, the record, and 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 put it, uh, transfer it to multi track, and then they they were taking rap over the over the track. I mean, it's, it's to the point where there were several samples of the, of Sissy Strut where you could he- actually hear the needle scratching. You know where you, you know where where they, where they go from that from the record. But now it's different today. It's different today. You got masters. You know, you got masters where they'll take and lease the master, and uh, then they'll make a deal with you, and for whatever percentage, usually fifty percent, and uh, no matter whatever, how much or whatever they sampled, because most most of most of the sampling has been in my guitar, you know, but but uh, a lot of the meter samples, they you 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 get it, you get you get paid from it through a percentage that you work out with them. And they'll take and lease your masters and pay you for that. You get paid for publishing. You get paid for writing and the whole bit. So it's a very lucrative uh, situation. So One of the best things that happened to me. That sounds like a good deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go back to the roots of the sound. Explain to me how it evolved with you and your players, yeah. the other players in the group at the time. You're talking Zigaboo. You're talking George Porter. You, Art, Art Neville. Mm-hmm. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, back... Then Art, Art had a band called the Hawkettes. He had a couple of hits, hit songs uh, mm-hmm. out, Mardi Gras Mambo and Shadooky mm-hmm. Doo. And I, w- I started mm-hmm. playing with Art. Yeah, I started playing with Art at a very young age. I was the first one that started playing with Art. Mm-hmm. So we, How old were you? Oh, man. You and he. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know, maybe 14, 15, 15 years old, something That's like that. That's the thing about music. People start young. Yeah, very young. All, all especially especially young. here in New, in New yeah. Orleans. So we... We did that, and we started playing at a at a at a club called the Nightcap uh, on Louisiana and Carondelet. So, I think uh, Richard, the bass player, was Richard Amos. The drummer was a guy by the name of Glenn. I can't think of Glenn's last last name, but but Glenn died. Mm. So we got Zig. We recruited Zig to take Glenn's place. Mm-hmm. And then later on, Richard Amos, the, the bass player, he got drafted into the army. And then George took mm-hmm. Richard Amos' place, and that was the the musical entity of of, of the Meters. And that's what it came together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, but it, we wasn't called the Meters then. Then we played there for for a while. We went to a, a club called the Ivanhoe on on Toulouse and Bourbon, and we started playing it like six nights a week, every night, man, like oh murder. Oh God. Yeah, murder. I mean, ugh. anyway. And there was a there's a song called Hold It. That everybody opened up their sets. We did like about maybe six or seven sets a night, and I personally got tired of playing it because all the bands would play it. If I had a guitar, I'd show you how it sound. Well, anyway. you know what? I'm gonna ask Susan. Oh no 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 no! I'm gonna ask Susan if she could play. <laughs> no, 
Um, okay, how about Sissy Strutt? Is that okay? Well, what is it? I'm, I'm getting we, to that. I'm getting to that. Okay. We want to maybe play a little bit of uh, the meters. Um, either Sissy Strutt uh, oh or Hold It or... What about Talk Myself? Well, which, which, which one would you prefer that she play? Well, I, I don't want to play anything, it. but if you're making me play, I guess I have to. But I want to tell you about Sissy Strutt. Okay. Uh, so there was a melody that was going on in my head for like three years. And I just kind of kept it to myself. So I, I said, listen, man, or George and Zig, I said, let's, let's, we got to change this, opening up the same song, man. Listen at this. So I played them the melody for Sissy Strutt. And, uh, the, the, the significance of which, of that is that the bass player is playing the same thing with the guitar, mm. which is in sync. And so they're mm-hmm. playing the same notes. It's the, one of the mm-hmm. f- first times that the bass has actually been featured along with, the, with you know, with the guitar. Now that was, mm-hmm. that's, that was, um, uncommon. unheard of yeah. back then. Yeah. Unheard of. I mean, it's commonplace now. The only time you hear the bass going anywhere from a four or five or a one, uh, going out of the out of the realm of the chord structure is, you know, is a few notes, and that was taboo. So here's here's the bass player playing the same thing as as the guitar is playing, playing the lead line on Sissy Strut. Yeah, on Sissy Strut. I want I want to hear Sissy Strut, Susan. That's what. Okay. Yeah. Tell me when you're ready. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Wait, she's not on yet. Yeah, and and you'll hear it. You know, you you'll hear you hear you hear what I'm talking about. Right. They're, they're in sync with each other. But but so again, just to do that, what made you think of? I just like to hear about the origins of things. So what I, made you think of doing that? Well, I mean, how did somebody think of doing? How did Edison think about the light bulb? You know, and, <laughs> and so on. You know, how did the Wright brothers think about flying? It, it's just and when, you know. And, and my next guest is a, a person who works with computers and art, and she's been inventing things too. So yeah. I love invention. Yeah. It's really it's, um, yeah. it's, it's 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 the be all and end all. And, and without, without situations like that, magical, divine, or whatever you may call it, without situations like that, a lot of things wouldn't be what it is today. It's not it's not wasn't planned. It's just in that person. You know, when I came up with the melody for Sixty Sixty Strut, it was in me for years, yeah. and it it just came out. I don't know why. I don't know who put it there. Mm-hmm. You know, but it just happened like that. You know. So and then the the the, the song came out and sold about two hundred and fifty thousand copies in two weeks. Here we go. Here we almost go. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you. 
my gosh. So that's that's how I grew up as a New Orleanian. You know, they, they, oh, somebody told me a great expression today. Who is it? Bonnie Boyd is a woman who runs tourism events. And I said, no, I'm not from New Orleans. Because she asked me, where are you from? I said, I'm not from New Orleans. But I've been here since 73. And she said, oh, so you've been brewed here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said, yes. I, yeah. hope, I hope to think so. So, um, yeah, I, I, that was part of my education about what was going on here when I come here from New York. Now, I had been hearing music from here in New York all my childhood. You know, all the Shirley and Lee and all that early early stuff, uh, Aaron, Neville, Tell It Like mm -hmm. It Is, and so on. But um, we weren't really focused on the fact that it was coming out of New Orleans. Yeah. This you couldn't escape. No, no. It's, it's from nowhere else. Yeah, and, and it was a special song, that particular song, because... You know, local artists, they, they only got their songs, their only songs played like on BOK, because it was a black radio station, WYLD, Larry McKinley, because it was a black radio station. We were black. The significance of that song, there was a station, I think it still is, WTIX. Oh, yeah. If you get your record played on WTIX. You have... You got you, you. You could just you know go what buy do your. What they call go, that when you, you go to? Yeah, you could you could go buy your Rolls Royce, you know, right now. <laughs> you know, go buy your house in, on uh, in the Garden District or something. Yeah. Yeah, but so T I X started playing uh, Sissy Strut, and it was and it started spreading all over the country. And that was that was uh, that, that, that was, was it. That was know? the big move. Fascinating. Now, so how do you account for how well it's lasted? I mean, again, as I say, you know, here's the other thing. This is my favorite thing. I, 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 I figure I have been brewed in New, York, in New Orleans when I can now listen to music and say, okay, they're not from New Orleans. Yeah. They're trying to be, but yeah. they're yeah. not. They can't do it. Yeah. You cannot do that beat if you are not from New Orleans. Well, you, you can approach the sound. You can copy it. You can say, oh, okay, that's based on New Orleans music. But it cannot be New Orleans well, unless I'll you put, are I'll from put it, here. I'll put it like this. There's no L.A. music. There's no New York music. You might get a little Nashville music because it's like country and western. But there is, unmistakably, New Orleans music. You just one of the not if not the only place in the country that can make that kind of claim. You know, um, Leo, I'm gonna someday ask you for permission to use that quote because there's a lot of talk in the city about how we should be trying to be like Nashville. You know, there are people who want to make the music industry grow, and I appreciate that they want to do that, but they want to do that by imitating Nashville, and, and we're saying, no, you can't do that, because what we have here is totally different, and it is, the difference is exactly what you just said, yeah. it's indigenous yeah. sound. It's not coming from anywhere else. No, it's coming from the musicians, how they grew up, where they grew up, what kind of life they grew up with, you know, doing, doing it, and it, 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 it affects their their way of thinking about music, you know, what was, I, that's, was what, that's your what happened sound, to me anyway. Was your sound uptown or downtown? I think it was a little above both, you know. I like I would like to say downtown because I'm a kind of a downtown seven ward kind of guy, you know. Yeah. But some of the players was anybody in the group? Uh, uh, where's where it was Zigaboo and Z George yeah, they, they were like uptown, you know. George and Art, and Art was uptown. The Irish Channel, you yeah. know. I think I was the only one that might have been uh, a misfit. <laughs> <laughs>
that was that was downtown. Down, but that was downtown. I, I just think that the um, you know, and let me say this. I want to say that I'll make this clear. Even though um, I wrote, I would say eighty percent of the song myself as an individual. You know, it was shared by every with everybody. I shared it with everybody, and it was for a reason because the only thing I wanted to do was see the meters happen. It didn't make any difference to me who wrote this, but on on that same subject, that that those the that music could not have happened without those particular guys. They took they took the they took the idea an idea wherever they got it from me or somebody else, and they took and and extrapolated on that. And they put their own individual uh, twist to it, which made it the meters. You know, it couldn't have been no way. If those songs would have been cut, if I would have introduced a song to somebody that's, that wasn't those three guys, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have been the same. And I think a lot, of, a lot of artists get credit and writers get credit because of the musicians that's in the studio. A lot of the musicians, they put their own feel in, in it, you know, and uh, they get the credit. Yeah, I wrote that, and they get the credit for it, but it's really the musicians that made the song. That's so interesting. So, yeah, um, you may not remember this, but when I was a reporter at WDSU, um, I had somehow um, re- persuaded the, the uh, editors to let me come do a coverage of you recording in C-Saint, Wow. They all asked for you. Wow! Yeah, yeah. That 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 song was a. Do you was, remember that? No, no but I, I didn't I, think so. That song was a novelty song. It's, it's amazing because we used to do it on a gig. Zig is actually one that came up with the idea, and uh, we started talking about the Audubon Zoo and whatever. And we just used to do it for a novelty. That's all. So the one of the producers said, "Look, y'all go in and record the song," and we went in and recorded, it, and it was like one of the biggest. Local songs that uh, we ever did. I have somewhere buried in my endless and chaotic files video. Wow. If it's still alive. because Now, wait. It would have been film. It's film, not video. So maybe it's still survived yeah, yeah. of that recording session. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to get my hands yeah, on that. Yeah, it was that. kind of magical thing. You know, What's you up to happen. now? Huh? What are you up to now? Well, I'm I'm back in New Orleans. I moved back to New Orleans about two and a half years ago. You've been gone for how after many? After 35 years. Oh my God. In Los Angeles, but I, you know, I always it's like I never left when I was gone. You know, I was here like four or five times a year doing whatever jazz fest or whatever they might ask me to do, and um, it got to the point where where. Uh, I never felt like I left. I always felt like I was always here, even though I was gone. What people say, well, Leo, say, where you live? Well, at, at, during those years, I lived mainly in Burbank, Burbank, California. So they say, well, where do you live? And I got to tell them, say, look, uh, I live in New Orleans, but I sleep in Burbank. <laughs> right. You know? Right. And, uh, so, you know, I, I just got used, I got tired of, uh, and this might sound strange, I got tired of the redundancy of, uh, great weather. Out in L.A., <laughs> you know, I you just, know, ha- we just had some of that California weather for the past two weeks, right? And I was saying, oh, please, just hang in there, just a few more days of this before the humidity yeah. and the heat uh, happens. So, man, okay, my uh, seasons, my husband, seasons, L.A. hardly has, no has they don't have any that's seasons, true. right? You know, this this place has seasons: winter, gloomy days, rain. You know, every day there's ridiculous sunshine. You know, it sounds good. Everybody, if you like that, 
But I wanted to I wanted it to be gloomy and cloudy and like I came At up. At least sometimes. Yeah. 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 So you know, uh, I'm enjoying being back. So what are you doing? Uh, I'm performing actually. The jazz is the most I performed in ten years during jazz fest season. Um, I've been doing uh, this club called C- Cafe Istanbul. I've been I did that oh, last that's my, last week. That's my partner, um, Chuck. Chuck is. Uh, yeah. I brought him in to be okay, and and he's been doing stuff here, and I love the man. Yeah, and uh, have you this, ever heard him uh, do his uh, spoken word? No, no. You need to organize to hear that. Oh. And you know what would be so cool? I'm going to put this idea out there. He's a terrific spoken word um, artist, and so he has a real rhythm to his how he talks. Mm-hmm. And if there was music behind him that you did, he works with other count, musicians count, all the time. Count me in. You know, do you have you met him yet? No, I don't need to know. When, when do you play there? <laughs> when are you playing there next? I'm I'm performing uh, tomorrow actually at uh, New Orleans Brewery on uh, Chapatulas, and it's a crawfish boil thing. It's going to be fun. And then set uh, Friday, I'm playing the Jazz Fest on the th- on the third uh, at one thirty. I go on on the stage, and then that fo- that following night, that Saturday, everyone must come out to. The Cafe Istanbul. I'm doing a, a personal show with my band that I that I flew in down here to perform for these for for, for my New Orleans fans. And now Bill DeBuda, Bill Dickens, DeBuda Dickens, is, yeah, who's, who's been sitting here taking it all in. All of it. <laughs> and and he's going to be in it. And so, yeah. um, okay, well, uh, when you are there on Saturday night, I'm sure Chuck Perkins will be there. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. you said, Gene Nathan said that I must talk to you and I must hear you do your spoken I'll, word I'll, I'll because you're going to be inspired by it. You're going to want to do something with it. I'll do that. Okay. So you got... Uh, go through those three places and yeah, times again so uh, people can come hear you? Yeah, tomorrow at the, the New Orleans Brewery, uh, the Crawfish Boil, they get all the crawfish they want to eat. And Saturday, I mean, 3 o'clock, 1.30 actually, 1.30 the 3rd uh, um, at the Fairgrounds on the Gentilly stage. And then the 4th, that following day, I'm doing my, my show with my band. And, uh, at what at, time at, is that? At, uh, the, I think it's 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. 10. That's okay. Saturday. Then after that, I'm doing another late late night with uh, with another with another group of guys. Well, well I'm always uh, telling my guests that I'm, I'm going to come. I'm going to come. And then Please I kind of crap out at night a lot these days. But um, I am going to be at Cafe Istanbul yeah. to hear you. Yeah. And I'm going to try to make this uh, connection between you and Chuck. But if I'm not there, you make that connection. Okay? I will. I will definitely be Leo the Great Nocentelli has been on Crosstown Conversations today. I'm very proud to have had you here. Thank you for having me. I remember so clearly the dewdrop days at the CAC. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God, was that great times. I wish that's all I had to do with my life right now. That was more fun than I've ever had before or since. And uh, recording you doing uh, They All Ask for You. Yeah. Um, at uh, at Sea Saint. Yeah. And um, I love the new. The, the I guess it's not so new, but the song by. Um, did we get a caller with the, who guessed who that was? They nobody guessed. Okay. Well, uh, you put it back on. Fred, just let's go out with it as I bring in my other guests, and we're gonna try one more time. Okay, y'all listen now. The 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 pe- person who's singing. 
is also the producer and is also the composer and it's all about Leo. Yeah. But if you cannot guess who that vocalist is, then you do not live here. Yeah, that is unbelievable that nobody never could, didn't call yet. Okay, well, we're, we're, this is a funny time of the day, and uh, this, is, um, this is not normally a call-in show, but uh, we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Leo, thank you. Thank you. Thank we're you for having again. me. Come You're see good. us on Esplanade Avenue yeah, sometime. Yeah, thank you. Great. Uh, Lucky you for having some fun here in town, huh? Oh, yeah. Where do you live? I live in Chicago. Chicago. Oh, yes. Chicago. Yes. We're going to get out. Bye, guys. Thank you. Know. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, okay, my dear? He walks the walk And he talks the talk He lives and breathes Coming up with new things With the New Orleans thing Other players know it around the world He's the meter man He's the meter man Patience so right and bold. Get on, get on, get on it. It's just so funky. Funky. Honky It can rattle your soul. Get on, get on, get on it. The meter man. Meter man. Of the meter band. Meter band. Get on, get on, get on. He's the meter man. All right, now, here's the thing, y'all. You hear how that guy said, funky? I I mean, that is a way that they say it in New Orleans, but in particular, that, that guy that was saying that, you you just got to know who that is. Okay, so this is a, a very interesting transition from Leo and from the person who recorded that song that you were just listening to, because that guy, one of the things that he was known for was his technical abilities to record and to add special elements. Now, the folks I have in the room with me now are involved with a brand new show that is part of the evolution of the historic New Orleans collection, which some of you may be familiar with and some of you may not be on Royal Street in New Orleans, which is... um, it has been a place where history was revealed, and now, however, it is making history because it has introduced some technology to make it, um, let's say, more interesting to kind of interact with and experience the art that is on view. And right now, the art that's on view is the art of many of the leading living artists in the city. David Hammer is with the Historic New Orleans Collection, and we're going to lead off with him, and then we're going to talk to Zhao Zhao, who is a computer scientist, a an artist, we have to say, and I would say an inventor. And she's going to take us to the next step in terms of how we present art to um, the people who like to see, hear, experience it. So what's going on over there, David? You, that used to be a kind of very elegant and very informative and very interesting, but kind of, you know, about history. But now we're, we're in the present tense. Hmm. Well, uh, thanks, Jean. I, uh, I really enjoyed that kind of introduction of the project. I think that uh, that was a great summarization of, of what we're doing. Surely... Uh, we're very much about history and uh, at the Historic New Orleans Collection, 
and about uh, in the French Quarter and in the historic buildings that we occupy in the French Quarter, um, taking the million-plus objects uh, relating to million the plus million-plus items in our collection. From the historic years of New Orleans. From, you know, it could be anything. We collect materials relating to the history and the culture of uh, New Orleans and the region, and we don't really discriminate in terms of what types of materials that might be. It's really about that broad subject matter. Mm. And so it's a, a very diverse collection in terms of uh, materials. It's pieces of paper. It's works of art. It's, it's You know, I heard somebody told me that you actually have uh, some of the material from the Dudrabin performances that I organized at the Contemporary Arts Center when we first opened when Leo and other meters played there because um, I know that they also lost some in this recent flood mm. that they had that was a result of the construction process. Mm -hmm. But someone told me you have some of our material. Can you look into that for me? Uh, yes, I can. I'd, I'd, like, to, that, I'd yeah. like to uh, revisit yeah. some of that You know, material. we have the, – the possibilities are kind of endless in terms of the types of things we might have. Uh, we receive a lot of our material through donation. Uh, we also go out and we purchase things. But – you know, people might bring to us something related to an episode in their lives or uh, careers, and um, and then, uh, you know, it may be then down the road that the historic significance of that thing uh, or that group of things is eventually emerges, discovered right. or emerges. Is a yeah. good way of putting it. You know, it. Mark uh, Cage, that's his name? Mark, Mark Cave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cave. Uh, he has done a series of oral interviews yes. with uh, my husband and I mm -hmm. that uh, will um, – yeah. That's be right. available someday. Yeah. And um and you also have a lot of my World's Fair papers. Yes. From when I was That's working right. at the World's Fair and that That's was right. quite a journey. Yes. And the World's <laughs> Fair is the jumping off point for the exhibition that you um, right. alluded to earlier which is the inaugural exhibition in our new facility Art of the City Postmodern to Post Katrina. It's a contemporary art show presented by the Hellas Foundation at the the collection. So our new facility is a huge expansion of our exhibition space. It's a 36,000 square foot facility and it is home to a new permanent exhibition about the history of the French Quarter, which is a story unto itself, uh, but it's also the home of our uh, new galleries for changing exhibitions. And these are um, galleries in a purpose-built facility. So we've taken the old WDSU building, what a lot of people know worked. is the old WDSU building. I worked there. And we've, uh, we've adapted the existing historic structures there. We've restored them. But we've also taken the vast portion of that property, which was occupied by buildings that WDSU built in the 1950s, and created a new construction exhibition facility there and have added about 12,000 square feet of new purpose-built exhibition space. And so we are opening that space with a show um, that is quite different than shows that we've done in the past, mm -hmm. not because we're not, not because we're less about the exploration of history than we have always been because, you know, the history, the past is as infinite as the future. You know, there's always new stories to learn. But because we wanted to underscore the newness of this exhibition space and the new potential we have for larger m and more dynamic exhibitions and, and, and larger and more diverse audiences and all of that by doing a show that was somewhat different than what we've done right. before. So Art and, of the City think, is about um, contemporary art mm -hmm. from the world 
the World's Fair era, mm-hmm. 1984, to the present day, mm-hmm. uh, postmodern to post Katrina, mm-hmm. and um, like you and said, you have there's a big block party coming up. Oh, we do. I Thank you. Wanna, yes, May 18th. I want to get that in. Yeah, absolutely. May 18th, the big block party will have Royal Street there in the 500 block closed off. Uh, some bands playing, some uh, vendors selling food and drink, and it should be a real nice afternoon. It's 11 to 3. Uh, Saturday. So, so your courtyard there yeah. um, is a kind of magical place, and I, I put in my newsletter, which I don't think you all saw yet, but um, if you give me an email, I'll make sure you see it. But um, when I first came here in 1972, it's, well, I was here doing political work in 72, but 73 is when I came here to work, live permanently, and I went to WDSU for an interview, and I walked through that courtyard. Mm. That's how I entered the building, is yeah. through that courtyard, and I looked around, and then it was the old style. It was like the old courtyards of, of the French Quarter. And mm-hmm. I said, whoa. And there was just something about it, and I don't know that I'm making this up, but I just looked at it and said, I- I'm going to be here for quite a while. Mm. Turned out to be the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't anticipate that, but I just had this in- incredible feeling about it. And um, it was an arts facility for part of its history. It was the, I forget what it was called exactly, the Louisiana Art Club. Arts and Crafts Club, yes. Arts and Crafts Club. And um, so that, I think that magic is, that's what I'm all about is the arts and, and uh, got to me. And, and now you have returned it to that use. But here's the twist. So with me is this woman who is a, as I said, a computer scientist. Is that fair? I study computer science in undergrad. Okay. So I, I think I mostly write code for art these days. Okay. So, so, so she enters the arts world, and she looks at new ways of helping us understand and access art. And I think that's a very intriguing and important task. Is that a fair way to describe what you do, or would you describe it some other way? Uh, gosh, I mean, I think there are many different ways of describing what I do, and each way is just as valid as the next, so I think we should go with it. Okay. And so so give me a little bit of a description, of the one piece that, uh, truthfully, I had, uh, you know, it, it's there's so much in it that I'm looking for Bob Tannen's crucifix, which is a big marlin on a crucifix. I don't know if you remember that image. Yeah. Um, and I had I had to really work to find it. But um, you've got this incredible, again, history of art from this period that you've integrated into this um, process. Explain it to me. Yeah, sure. So um, before I start talking about the project, I, I want to make it clear that this project was actually a collaboration between uh, myself and my collaborator who's not able to be here today because he just flew back in to New Orleans last night and got in quite late. Um, but his name is Alan Kwan and also our mutual friend Bjorn Sparman who um, helped us design the stand. So it's kind of the, the three of us who work together mm-hmm. um, along with uh, Abe Giesland who helped fabricate the stand. And so um, to dive into the concept of the project, I think uh, Daniel and John approached me uh, when they were trying to think of ways to make uh, the Brulatour project more, uh, uh, the Brulatour project connect more in with the future 
uh, and they were interested in ways to make history come to life. Oh, now the microphone works. Cool. Um, so we started brainstorming different ways that this could happen. And one of the things that we really wanted to do was to integrate virtual reality into the courtyard. And so we came up with the idea of having these sorts of uh, tourist binoculars where you can put a coin in, but these ones are free. Uh, you look inside and instead of seeing the panorama around you, you see what happened in the past. And uh, in order to do this, I recruited Alan, Alan Kwan, who's a video game designer that I met at MIT, um, who's just a wizard with 3D worlds. And together, um, we went to the research center of the historic New Orleans collection and spent quite a bit of time looking at many, many old pictures of the building. Um, we even designed the costumes of what people wore. And um, we had so part of the idea is to show what the architecture looked like in different times periods and we have four different scenes so one scene is from 1820 which is when the building first started um and it was, it was built uh it was built in 1816 yes the the main house was built in 1816 but uh there was a significant change that occurred in 1822 with an addition in the courtyard so 1820 shows kind of the main house that was built in 1816 but also some things that are quite different than what the courtyard looks like now, sure. which is based largely in that uh, post-1822 look. And that scene in particular is was super interesting because we had to get into some archaeological information mm. to figure out exactly what was there. And so um, maybe to take back a step, uh, the two things that we wanted to show people were, on the one hand, um, how the architecture changed because there are massive changes throughout different uh, points that we chose to depict as well as the different sorts of activities that took place in the courtyard. So in 1820, it was still owned by the original owner, uh, François Signoret, who was a an upholster and uh, furniture builder. So we had people um, working on furniture in the oh, courtyard. So Signoret worked there? I didn't know that. He built the... I'm the familiar with his work, of yes. course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we had have um, in their like little gardens in the courtyard. There are people walking through with the costumes from that time period. And then we jump to 1880, which was... Uh, so it changed hands. Uh, Signore sold, sold it to Brulator, who the building is now mostly now more known under. Uh, but I think the function of the space... Uh, well, Brulator was a wine dealer, and that... I was just going to say, Brulator is a name that I associate with liquor, and I don't know why. <laughs> There's some connection there. Both uh, Signore and Brulator were importers of uh, French uh, foodstuffs that they sold out of shops that faced on Royal Street in that oh, building. Okay. And, of course, predominantly we're talking about wine, but they also uh, dealt in uh, canned foodstuffs, mm -hmm. uh, oil, olive mm -hmm. oil, and things like that. Uh, um, and by the way, some interior scenes can be seen in the elevator. That's right. <laughs> but, but I'll talk about that in a second. So then, so the first scene, 1820, the second scene, 1880. Um, and by that point, that was kind of like a downfall of the French Quarter, where after the Civil War, um, the area became quite dilapidated. There were a lot of immigrants, a lot of tenement housing. It was quite dirty, quite grungy, we should say. And uh, the courtyard became this sort of workspace. 
where people had livestock. People are feeding chickens. <laughs> yeah, chickens. yeah, livestock wow. and chickens and just like broken pots everywhere. And we know this to be um, historically mm-hmm. accurate. And for this scene, it was the first scene that we were able to use photographs to reconstruct, which was quite interesting. Um, and so then in terms of, um, well, I'll first go over the scenes and then I'll talk about some of the cooler technological sure. things that we did. So okay. the third scene was um, the Arts and Crafts Club, which we just talked about earlier, where this was part of the French Quarter Restoration Movement, where these artists came in. And it's, you know, it's actually... The quite Restoration th- Movement starts when, approximately? Around 1920. Well, That's around 1910-ish, because uh, Irby, William Irby, who purchased the building in the early... 1918. 19- yeah. So he was um, a very wealthy man who bought the building, and did, I, did he lease it out to the... Yes, yeah, so, you know, the... Preservation got going in the French Quarter around the turn of the 20th century in the form of wealthy people purchasing properties that they thought were beautiful and important. It was a small number of people. So it was sort of part of the uh, an earlier and phase of the preservation movement. It well, it was kind of the beginning of the preservation of movement it. in mm-hmm. the quarter, mm-hmm. and it you know proceeded with that uh, being the predominant force of preservation in the quarter and the, through the first half of the 20th century, really. And, of course, the Williamses, the founders of the collection, were among those wealthy people who purchased properties in the French Quarter in order to preserve them, save them, convince people they were beautiful and important. And that's in the 20s. The, mm-hmm. the other um, component was the kind of bohemian arts. The artists, the, the artists, always, uh, as, as happens today, yeah, exactly. the artists come <laughs> and they revive an area. Sometimes they can survive the gentrification that yes. inevitably follows that, and sometimes they can't. But well, And in the, the French Quarter, um, from what I understand, they did not. They, they did kind of get pushed out ultimately well in some respects ultimately to be sure but in that early in that 1920s era you actually see the two groups coming together in a single place which was the arts craft meaning the preservationists and the artists so you have yes Mm. you have the the wealthy patrons of the arts Mm. and the artists themselves Mm -hmm. uh, finding a shared location if Mm -hmm. you will at the Arts and Crafts Club in this building that William Ruby, who was among and, the preservationists, had purchased in 1918, right. and when he undertook a major restoration of the building in order to create a luxury residence for himself on the third floor, the main mm-hmm. floor, mm-hmm. he also uh, converted the rest of the facility, which was vast, into uh, space for the Arts and Crafts Club, uh, studio spaces for the artists, classroom spaces, exhibition spaces, a commercial space for a shop, mm-hmm. and the Arts and Crafts Club began. It's to so offer funny how that's really s- still what we try to, to make happen things. today. Is yep. those kind of facilities? Absolutely, it yeah. was a very important organization to be mm-hmm. sure, and it was critical in the um, in the continued growth of the idea of the French Quarter as a place that was uh, that most people understood as beautiful, worth visiting, interesting, and that idea grew and grew. Eventually, the French Quarter becomes the heart of what was known around the world as America's most interesting city in the 1960s. And of course, eventually, it becomes the motor of the tourism engine in New Orleans. And so the preservation successes of the 20th century have led to the preservation threats of the 21st century. Right, because I was just about to say that, um, of course, now... um, 
there's so much pressure on the yes. French Quarter commercially that it's in danger. Yes. And I, I'm originally from New York, and I lived through a similar cycle with the Greenwich Village, yes. which starts out, again, as a beautiful historic area. The preservationists were involved. The artists come. Uh, by the time I left New York, um, it, it was no longer um, a, a cutting-edge artist's yes. uh, place. That had moved to Soho yes. uh, in the 60s. And, and so um, Greenwich Village was uh, – I don't, I don't even know what the status of it is now, quite frankly, because I'm just spending yes. so much more time here. But um, it's, it's a, those patterns are so – It's a pattern that you see all over the yeah. world. And I really think that it is, uh, it is why Shaoshao and Allen's uh, installation in the courtyard of this – Building is so um, brilliant because it, in a you know, in a non-academic way, in a non-narrative way, in a visual, and also uh, in a way sensory way, because it's immersive. You get to see the way that a place changes over time because mm -hmm. change is, is is part of history. Things mm -hmm. change, mm -hmm. and preservation isn't about uh, denying that change. It's about understanding the change mm -hmm. and illustrating it and preserving the, the history of it, the stories of it, uh, for the purpose yeah. of our, our general, um, I think, it's, civic it's improvement. A, and so this piece really, I think, yeah. shows that story of change, not mm -hmm. just how the buildings have changed physically, but mm -hmm. also how the, the people who occupy them have changed, the types mm -hmm. of people, the, the types of activities. And when you think about it, the French Quarter, as the oldest neighborhood of New Orleans, and the buildings of the French Quarter, as among the city's oldest, they they contain the stories of everybody in New Orleans. If only we could Originally, draw yeah. those stories yeah. out of that fabric. David, uh, have you ever been to um, Panama? I've never Country been to Panama. Country Panama. I've been to Panama City, Florida. Yeah. <laughs> no, Does not that the same count? Thing. Have you been to Panama? I have Shoshone? not. Okay, so this is a trip you have to make, considering your focus and the work you've done in New Orleans and the French Quarter, because they have a place there called the Casca Viejo, mm -hmm. which is their old city. It's their Vieux Carré. Mm -hmm. And um, you will walk down the streets of that neighborhood and, and think you're in New Orleans mm -hmm. because it is so similar. And, of course, this is true of Havana also and other places. So that, that, that Caribbean character of our city comes through so much after you experience another city that is so similar. And they had a fire <clears throat> not too long after we had a big fire that took down a lot of the French Quarter. And to restore it, they brought artisans from New Orleans, especially the cast iron to recreate the balconies, which are actually Spanish, not French. And um, they, they, they brought them from New Orleans to Panama to do it. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, I just walked around with my jaw dropped to say, oh, this is what it's all about. It's, it's a Caribbean, mm. um, which comes from, of course, many different roots. I want to go back to um, Shasha's work. And so um, how did you happen on the, uh, the technical approach that you adapted and what's next uh, in your mind for how to 
interpret and make art accessible to people? Yeah, well, um, maybe if I can just finish one thing with the previous question, okay. just to finish describing the things um, okay. there, and then I'll answer your question. Sure. Yeah, so the, the three, uh, so we talked about 1820, 1880, 1920, and finally there's 1960, which is WDSU. And then um, just a couple of tidbits about uh, the, the exhibit that we are particularly proud of. Um, one is that in order to create realistic movements of people in the uh, virtual scenes, we actually did some motion capture. And uh, we had a, a, a fun activity where we had a, a lottery at HNOC, and uh, several staff members were lucky enough to get immortalized as 3D characters <laughs> in the scenes. Um, Daniel got his just like we just decided to give it to him and John for free because they are the ones who asked us to be on the project. And Daniel really wanted to be feeding chickens. And so he's somewhere hiding somewhere feeding chickens in 1880 on a oh, roof. I'm going to have to look for that. Yeah. yeah. I've done some chicken feeding myself in my family's farm out in Jersey. Yeah. Speaking of child. Yeah. Easter eggs. Um, it's not as simple as it looks. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And then um, Daniel was saying that it, it's an immersive installation, and yeah. part of what makes it immersive is that there's also sound. But there are no speakers. Because, well, technically, they're not the speakers that you're used to or the headphones that you're used to, and that's because it uses this, this technology called bone conduction. So there's a piece... Bone? Bone conduction. Conduction. Yeah, so there's... Um, Sounds rather ominous. Well, so they, they do sell <laughs> headphones that use the principle of bone, con bone conduction, and it's something that vibrates, the usually the bone that's I next to your ear, yeah. and it's actually really good for joggers because it keeps their ears open so it's not blocked, they can hear traffic, other things. But for this, um, we we had the idea of when you're looking into the binoculars, your forehead is touching the top part of it. And we have this transducer there so that when your head is pressed against it, you hear music in your head. Oh, my goodness. That sounds so fabulous. Okay, so I'm coming back to my question because yeah. we only have about four minutes left on oh, our program. Yeah. But so... so um, in, in that inventive mind of yours, like Leo was talking about that song that reverberated in his mind for so many years before it was actually recorded, what is reverberating in your mind right now about how you are looking to, again, express, communicate art? Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, I think, speaking of inventive minds, um, I actually just had a book come out where I didn't write the book. Um, the book is an essay, um, is a set of essays by Marvin Minsky, who is a pioneer of artificial intelligence. And My by the way. My husband's best friend. My husband, Bob Tannen. Oh lived, my gosh, Eugene, we spoke on the phone. Right. Yeah, that's, he, okay. lived, he lived in Boston, and Marvin Minsky was, we were there for his memorial. We, we spent, uh, uh, the only thing, disappointment I have about Marvin Minsky, who, by the way, for the sake of my audience, who's not in on this private conversation here, he was one of the inventors of artificial intelligence. And he has a book that was never finished, but maybe that's the book that you're speaking oh, of? Oh, um, yeah, so these are the essays that he wrote for One Laptop Per Child, and these are on the topic of it. Of education, which he was very passionate about, very interested in, but it wasn't his public work or what he's known for. Right. And um, 
Yes, we came so, down here, you know, for the Contemporary Art Center founding and did a whole thing about artificial intelligence in the arts, just so you know, and we facilitated that. We yeah. know Marvin very well. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, yeah. No, I remember you emailed me, and I guess I didn't speak to you on this phone. I spoke yeah. to, to Bob. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's so funny. Okay, so um, uh, so there's this book that just came out, and um, I illustrated it and co-edited it with Cynthia Solomon. I should have brought you a copy. I was just going to um, say, I yeah. need to see that. Okay, so we... Yeah, well, I, You'll I mean, have to pass by our house, which is not far from the Jazz Fest. All right, and, yeah. And visit and bring it. Yeah, I need to do that. Okay. So, um, and, and then if you could bring the, 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 the Bach um, music box with you. Oh, gosh. That's what? even more important because yeah. that is my fixation in life that I never got one before he... Oh, well, I'll ask Gloria tomorrow because I'm... Go- anyway, this is all the aside. So in terms of what's next, I'm, I'm actually working on a um, new installation at the uh, at this new education center that's across from the World War II Museum that's opened by um, Phyllis Taylor, um, the Taylor Foundation. And um, I guess... So this is also a collaboration where I was asked to do the project. I brought Alan along because we've worked so well together. And I was introduced also to members of this construction crew um, of young artists um, in the city, um, this construction crew called Carousel, and we've been building this um, installation. In carousel? Which a carousel, oh, carousel. Is the, carousel. Carousel is the name of this um, artist collective uh, where the members, I'm working with them, and uh, the installation itself is actually about metaphors of the mind throughout history. And uh, because it's for an education center and we wanted to depict different ways of envisioning the mind through the well. So it's in a four story elevator cage and but there's no elevator. So it's just the cage. And we're putting different sorts of sculptural elements in it to show different ways of thinking about the mind. But at the same time, we're using different machines in the makerspace, which is part of the building. And um, everything in the installation has to do has a New Orleans flavor. So wait, so how do you move in the elevator shaft to see these different... There's stairs around it. It's like in the old style um, uh, buildings, like in Europe, how there's the elevator inside. So I guess um, there's the installation, which is what I'm working on right now with this amazing team. But actually what I really envision in terms of the next steps in art, in interactivity, is I really see art as a way of knowing and a way of learning and a way of problem solving. And I think that especially in contemporary art, there has been such a trend where it's almost become this um, elitist club where if you haven't gotten, if you did not have the right education, if you don't know the right jargon, if you can't talk about things in a certain way, and of course this is not all art. I think a great thing about Art of the City exhibit is how accessible it is to people, and a great thing about what the collection is doing is having the guides um, explain things and make it uh, more uh, communicable, understandable. yeah, understandable to the to the general public. General public yeah. But what I feel is that I think that there's so much potential in using the arts as a way to help people learn about their own minds. And I think um, also in terms of community community and skill building, and this is also part of um, what this orga- organization I'm working with, Carousel, is doing, where they're trying to get marginalized communities to work on art installations together as a way to help them earn a living, but also to help them earn 
and skills. That sounds and fascinating. Is that a New Orleans-based talk? It is. It is. I, I need to learn more about that offline. We're going to have to uh, pursue <laughs> that subject uh, and, and with Tannen as well. We are actually out of time. It, it, it kind of just whoosh, went by right uh, uh, too, a little too fast. But uh, let's go back to uh, make sure that everybody heard that there is a huge block party on Royal Street on May... May 18th, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., big block party in the 500 block of Royal Street. And Art of the City has all sorts of programming associated with it throughout its six-month run. So hnoc.org to find out all about the information. And that's on a Saturday. That that is on a Saturday. And everything for Art of the City is free of charge, um, thanks to the support of the exhibition by the Hellas Foundation. So uh, we just uh, would love for everyone listening to go to our website and find out about all of the programs that we're offering and to take advantage of them. Food. Music. Uh, oh, at the block party. Yeah, music, food, uh, the whole shebang. Yeah. Okay. Got to tell people that that's there because that's oh, yeah. what brings everybody out eat. in New Orleans. Yeah. I am so delighted to have you here, and I'm, I'm thrilled about the exhibition, thrilled about the work that you've done and that you're going to do, and um, thrilled to meet a, uh, another associate of Marvin Minsky's. Thanks for having <laughs> us. Um, Thanks for what having serendipity. Us, David Hammer and, and Shosho and I um, am Jean Nathan, and this is Crosstown Conversations. And ah, it's the end of the show, but not the end of the program. We'll be back next week on Wednesday, and then we'll continue from there. By the way, that was Alan Toussaint. You crazy people out there. Okay. <laughs> well, I recorded him for, for, for the first. Thank mm-hmm. you.